Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade and I are here in the office and uh, we'd like to discuss um, modernism, postmodernism, intellectual history. We're going to be all over the, uh, the board here in this episode. But my primary uh, thing that I want to talk about is a sociologist named Pitram Sorokin, um, who had a way of looking at history uh, through his studies. And I think you'll find it interesting, especially as we compare pre-modern, modern, and postmodern thought. It won't be too complicated, so even if you don't have an interest in philosophy or sociology, I think you'll be able to... Uh, tag along and be able to understand where we're, where we're at. Um, before I go any further, Wade, can I just do this before I forget? I'm going to plug my apologetics You, you do whatever thing. you think is best. And That's important. And then you. you can say what you want. Um, Carrie Keene and I, uh, a friend and a uh, multiple-time guest on the podcast, uh, who is our physicist here at Wisconsin Lutheran College in Milwaukee, he and I offer up on a practical apologetics class, and this year we're going to offer it June 15th to 19th, um, so that'll be 2020, and the cost is only $200 for a week long. Uh, we meet a few hours each morning and then one afternoon, and we get together in the evening a couple times. It's fairly laid back, but also intense in the sense that uh, we'll go through a lot and challenge you. Um, and just kind of going through the basics of apologetics and arguments. And Carrie, of course, is really good on the science stuff and how to think about science and philosophy and religion. We also have a second week. Um, you don't have to go to the first week before you go to the second week. You can come to both or either one. And it's entitled Into the Postmodern Wilderness. And that's where we're going to bring in Pastor Luke Thompson from Ottawa, Ontario. And he's going to kind of just... Uh, navigate postmodernism uh, in, in a way. So really helpful. That one would be really helpful for pastors and teachers um, and, uh, and laity who are really well-read. Um, the other class uh, can be anybody. I think uh, you, would, you would find a home, even if you've never picked up a book on apologetics or if you are really concerned about it. Let's say you're a campus pastor um, at a college or something like that. So Black Earth Apologetics or Go to our uh, website, uh, Let the Bird Fly, and you can find our email, email to me, and I will get information to you. Uh, but blackearthapologetics.com uh, is, the, is the address there. We hope that we have many people from many different backgrounds that will come. Is that good? I think that was great. Before we get into the main topic, Wade is going to read the disclaimer that he is the author of, but hasn't probably read in like a year and a half. Yeah, so this episode is uh, Mike's baby. He kind of described what he wanted to do. He gave me a little bit to read. But uh, he was describing it fine, but it seemed like something he had a better grasp on than I did. So I get to read the disclaimer for once, and we'll, hopefully I can uh, read it well. The show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because while as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way.
Hi, we're back for our main topic, uh, which is to discuss primarily uh, the sociologist uh, study uh, done by um, Pitram Sorokin, which then came into at least my Lutheran world uh, through a Missouri Synod pastor named Frederick Bowie. Um, Pitram Sorokin, uh, I think his book, uh, one of his books was The Crisis of Our Age. Uh, Frederick Bowie, uh, his book is entitled uh, The Spiritual Society, What Lurks Beyond Postmodernism. And uh, he, it's a nice little book. I, that's kind of one of the books I think should be on the shelf of every uh, Lutheran pastor if, if I was to give a reading list. And, uh, but if you're, if you're not willing to buy that book, he did uh, write an article summarizing his book in Logia in 2004. And so you could probably find that out as well. Um, and this was one of those books, Wade, that was uh, just at the right time for me. Um, it really hit home for me, and um, I never heard... Uh, you know what book was like that for me? Besides the Bible? I was going to say the Bible. Was the Bible, You yeah. know I was going to do that? Yeah, I, I could see that one coming a mile away. Yeah. Well, here, give me give me one book that was like, man, that was just the right book at the right time. Let me. Here's the other book that, for me, oh, which I read, I think, in seminary, was Harold St. Biles' uh, The Power of Forgiveness. Oh, that was a good one. And, then, and then this book was, was hit home for me. There's others, of course. You got one off the top of your head? Those are fun books. I was books. just going to say the Bible. I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Yeah, well, maybe by the end of the uh, episode, you can think of it. That that would actually be... Have we done an episode like that before? No, oh, that'd be a good one. That would be a good one where we... Maybe Peter could... Do you, do you know this guy, Peter? Hermanson? I've heard of him. I, I've um, heard that in the... Uh, <clears throat> primordial days of the podcast yeah. he was actually a he'd be a good one to have on regular and, and or host. it'd be great to have the whole english department here and be like you get to choose three books that were they're not necessarily like oh these are just a great classics but they were the right book for the right time for you right and this was one of those books where i'm trying to think trying to think clearly especially as an early pastor i'm i'm just asserting things and i'm not really understanding um everything especially philosophically and you know you heard existentialism and postmodernism and all you knew is that they were bad but nobody could ever really define them and so i came across uh this book and then later the article actually um uh that frederick bowie missouri synod pastor uh ha had written and uh he had he was in a bookstore i think or something like that or a library when he found this book by pitram sorokin and it kind of changed the way he looked at, at history. And then he really took that on later in his ministry and then wrote this book, The Spiritual Society. So let me talk about Pitram Sorokin just for a little bit. He was a Russian-born sociologist, worked at the University of Minnesota, and then he uh, was the founder of the sociology department at Harvard, um, early, early 20th century. And he did a lot of research, uh, painstaking research in sociology. And what he would do is he would take maybe a 10-year period, and really he would go down a little bit even deeper than that, I think. And he would say, okay, what are the major things that occurred in a particular uh, culture? So um, uh, the Magna Carta, that would be a big check mark. Um, uh, some famous piece of artwork that would be uh, uh, something that would, would, would fit this, this study that he was doing. And he, so he started lining up and started calculating all these different great uh, accomplishments by humanity in a particular place and culture. And what he noticed was 
that there was an ebb and flow between two states um, <clears throat> or dominant kind of cultures. The first one I think he called sensate, think sensual, think physical. The other one was kind of more an idea age. Uh, so you may even think kind of spiritual in that sense. And so in 10 year periods, he charted what were the great accomplishments in a particular culture. And he noticed, and he divided these up between um, these two things, maybe something more physical, which would include statesmanship. So like the Magna Carta or, uh, you know, some great passage of, of legislature. Uh, what would also be included in that category would be technology. So the aqueducts, um, uh, Roman roads, um, some sort of invention, those kinds of, of statesmanship, um, uh, technology, those kind of maybe hard kind of things, law, science, technology, statesmanship, politics. The other category would be more um, art, education, uh, music, great literature, these kinds of things. And when he charted it year by year and decade by decade, he noticed uh, that certain decades would be higher on the physical side, statesmanship technology, and they would be conversely low, lower um, on the great uh, accomplishments with art, literature, music, and such. And he also noticed that an, uh, a culture would grow in one while the other one would grow as a minority. So um, you can imagine like a kind of a wave on a, on a on a piece of paper, I would dry, draw a wave that it would go up and then would go down and then go up. There would be an ebb and flow. And the, the other category would ebb and flow at almost the exact opposite rate. So if a culture was more into technology, statesmanship, all these kinds of things, and that became important, conversely, the things that had to do with art, literature, religious, philosophy, that kind of would become a minority. And so you would have a situation where there would be a majority and there would be a minority, but then the majority would become overripe. And just as that majority would be coming overripe, whatever category was in the minority would start to become an, an dominant. And then those two things would cross and the one that was a minority would become the majority and vice versa. And when they crossed, he called these ages ideational ages or transition ages. So let me give, let me give you an example of this and, and put it, uh, this abstract into, into something that was concrete. The ancient Greeks would have been more of a uh, philosophical, spiritual age. So great art, thinking about great philosophy and that stuff. It becomes eventually overripe. And then you have Alexander the Great who comes and you have a transition age. And during these transition ages, you have the best and the worst of humanity. You tend to have a lot of conflict, a lot of wars, but you also have, uh, tend to have some of the great art, the great, uh, the greatest art that comes out uh, of certain eras. So there is a transition age, perhaps let's say Alexander the Great and the rise of Rome. And then when Rome becomes dominant, it uh, is much about statesmanship, concrete, aqueducts, Roman roads, the Senate, all these things. Sure, they did art and philosophy, but it was largely kind of copying the Greeks. 
And then you have the fall of Rome, and what emerges after the fall of Rome is what we might call the medieval period. So not so great on indoor plumbing, which they would have done a little bit more advances technology that-wise. But you also have great things uh, when it comes to music and art. Think of the great cathedrals that were built, that kind of thing. Then you have that becomes overripe and corrupt, like a piece of fruit. It becomes corrupt, and it starts to, uh, starts to fade. And in the next transition period, you have the Renaissance and the Reformation, some of the best and the worst of, of, of humanity. And then after that, you have a more technological, statesmanship, science kind of age, which blossoms into the Enlightenment. We might call this the modern period. So if this, if this pattern uh, flows, and, and, and I, think it, I think there's good reason to believe that, that it might, um, maybe let me back up and say two things about that. Um, uh, first of all, Bowie or uh, Sorokin did this in other cultures too. So it wasn't just a Western thing. He saw this being uh, played out in, in other cultures as well. And during this, uh, these majority minority situations where maybe a, uh, think the enlightenment. So a science rationalistic kind of, of era dominates um, over against maybe a more spiritual humanities sort of era, there are always going to be rebellions. And so the prime example would be romanticism would kind of be a rebellion, a kind of almost not a one-off, but almost a one-off um, kind of rebelling against the majority. So if this ebb and flow continues and we see late modernity, we may even see kind of like an overripe modern period, if it continues, and this is then Frederick Bowie's case, uh, uh, thesis, is that there is this going to be a spiritual age that flows after this modern age. So I'll leave there. I got a lot more to say there, but I'll see if you have, if you're digging this or not. It's, by the way, it's only one way to think about intellectual history and through the lens of sociology. Um, it's not the be all and the end all, and we shouldn't be in the, the job of predicting the future, but I think it's valuable, especially in the church. So what are your first uh, reactions to that as somebody who actually studied intellectual history? Well, no, I, I I think I'm tracking you so far, and it, it's not something I've done a lot of work with with um, Sorokin. How, am I, how do you say Sorokin? I think is his <clears throat> Sorokin. Um, I did read the the Bowie piece you gave me. I guess rather than comment a lot at this point, um, since you've done more work with it, my question would be, um, what is the the value in viewing it this way that as he presents it, or as mm-hmm. um, you've mentioned, you know, using it in class as mm-hmm. an example for things. Um, how do, how does he get to it or what does he sure. what is th- think is helpful for, by yeah. using it? And let me, let me punt on part of that question about why I think it's valuable for pastors in the church to think about, and we'll come back to that. But uh, it does help us kind of understand ourselves. So you think about America has only known the modern period, right? A, 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 an enlightenment, post-enlightenment kind of period. And so I just in, in our culture, we, we tend to, to be more attractive to 
Roman history than Greek history, right? I mean, we, we have a Senate. We have, we uh, often, the, our buildings are, are kind of in that, that Roman style, which of course was, was uh, uh, you know, borrowed a lot from the Greek style. Um, we tend to be attractive to that empire kind of, of way of thinking, um, uh, big military, kinds of all those things. And perhaps, perhaps we have uh, not really appreciated maybe the arts and literature as much as we, we should have. And maybe we fall into the trap of the Enlightenment that, of course, uh, in a pejorative way, called the medieval, some of the medieval ages, the Dark Ages, right? They weren't doing anything good there. And we and we we miss something about being a well-rounded person. I mean, we can think of, um, you know, even stem over uh, the liberal arts kind kind of stuff. Uh, I, I think there's a self-awareness that uh, that is helpful in that situation. Um, and, and I and I think it does help us in our contemporary age when we look at especially our age and younger. Um, I like to use the, the baseball stadium analogy here. So, uh, you know, you can think of, there's only two baseball stadiums that, that were, that are still holding on from the, from an old era, Wrigley field and Fenway park. And we, and we hold on to those as kind of unique parts of our history. But starting in the sixties, what we did was we started to build very kind of futuristic stadiums. So Astro turf, right? It's in the name already. And uh, they're concrete. They are, uh, they are utilitarian, right? They can have baseball and they could have football. And they were even called some of the wonders of the the Astrodome was called one of uh, the wonders of the of the modern world at one point. Um, and yet, all of them, besides the Astrodome in Houston, have already been blown up and replaced. And starting in the '90s, we started to think about the experience of the fan, right? There is kind of an aesthetic that's going on there. It's not just about the functioning of seeing a sporting event. You want to have an experience. And I think you can see that being uh, played out in a lot of different ways in our culture. I just think about buildings. So uh, cathedrals were built in a pre-modern way to the glory of, of God. Skyscrapers, or think of all the housing projects. Think about all of the the, the bland uh, buildings that uh, that were built uh, in communist eras or even Nazi eras uh, that were that were utilitarian. Uh, we built skyscrapers in this era uh, to the glory of man rather than glory of God. But now, when we look at our tech architecture, we see it as the for the experience of man. Right. And so we take a old abandoned factory. We make condos out of it. Now, we're not going to give up our modern, uh, our, our modern, modern, um, you know, plumbing and all that kind of stuff. But we are attractive to something that's a little bit more holistic. We are attracted to something that's a little bit more aesthetic. Um, maybe even we can just uh, uh, think about uh, that whole physical, spiritual thing. Um, that in the pre-modern era, when I looked at how I know things, my epistemology, it's through the lens of God. Um, and so, you know, why does your town have the plague? Well, God hates you, right? In the modern period, it, things, our epistemology was seen through rationality. It was seen through science. And so you got the plague because, you know, you got rats, right? And, and follow that, you know, this is a disease and follow that through. Um, <clears throat> But if we go into a postmodern, more spiritual age, 
we've realized maybe the modern period didn't have all the answers. And so um, there is a much more holistic way of looking at things. Uh, I, I like to think about it this way. Um, I think people our age and younger will not accept the collateral damage of the progress of modernity. They're acutely aware of injustice more than our grandparents were um, and are not willing to accept that. Uh, they, are not, they, they don't get excited about a microwave uh, a dinner the way, the way uh, Americans did when they first came out. You know? They want their uh, food to be ethically sourced but also done organically and well. You know, it, there's more of a spiritual experience to day-to-day -day life than there was for our grandparents in the 1950s. Um, and I think you see that in architecture, you see that in art, you see that um, in food, you see that in a lot of different ways. I guess to follow up with an, another question then, because um, I'm enjoying just listening to someone on this one. Um, you know, I, I think in the little bit I've looked at with Sorokin, um, he calls the ideation more religious and the sensation is mm -hmm. that sensation is that sensate <coughs> i don't know if how he pronounces sensate it, um less religious but um when we're if we're speaking of religion as far as law and gospel um and specifically um lutheranism if we're thinking book of conquer doctrine of justification law gospel which is more friendly um to that christian faith is one more friendly to that christian faith or are they both wrought with challenges? They're just different challenges. Yeah, I think that the latter, and, and that's a good point that, that Bowie makes out in his book. He says this new spiritual age is most likely not going to be Christian. Um, um, you, you can just think of, you know, think of the Beatles uh, bringing in popularizing kind of Eastern mysticism, right? It was always there, but now, uh, you know, I can think of, uh, you know, transcendentalism would be a kind of a, a, a rebellion against modernity, but it becomes more popular again, new agey kind of stuff. Uh, all of a sudden we think of, about, you know, just Tolkien is, is more popular now. Um, Dungeons and Dragons, I mean, all of these kinds of things that um, have a certain mysticism to it, and it's not necessarily going to be uh, pro-Christian. Um, but I do think that there is a difference. Our children are not going to face kind of the new atheists, which maybe we sort of face, not really, you know, mano a mano, but, um, you know, it, it, people are open to Christianity because they're open to spirituality in general, right? Um, you know, one of the differences and becomes a challenge for Christianity, one of the differences between the modern period and then whatever we are here, and I hate to use the word postmodernism because we need about 150 years of history to give ourselves a good label to really figure out where we are. Um, but modernity wants to have certainty, right? We can, we can put everything into an encyclopedia. Um, and, and hey, the, even the Lutheran Church got into this a little bit too much that we can we can put all of doctrine into into a, a systematic way. Um, we can have unlimited progress with science. We can figure out all of this, and we can overcome perhaps even death, just given enough time, because we are that smart as human beings. And I and I think our children face a world that says, you know what? I don't think you have it all figured out, scientists, right? But along with that comes an attack on truth, right? Which would be kind of uh, you know, postmodern linguistics and, and um, th those attacks on language and therefore truth. And so 
um, where the attack against Christianity in, let's just say, 1875 in Berlin is going to be an attack from the rational side, a modern side, where they attack about Christianity um, in America in 2020 may be attack on truth in general, right? So there are challenges. They are, are just different. And um, uh, with that said, though, I think, and maybe we can get to this later, I do think that this is maybe perhaps a uniquely Lutheran moment, however, um, as, as we think about the challenges of the, the church in our contemporary scene. Um, I guess something to unpack with that maybe more, too, is, and now I'm reminding me of a paper I wrote way back when, when I was in seminary and didn't know anything. Um, and I think, like you said, you're trying to work through those things in seminary, and it's in the, the WLS essay file still. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it was a sacramental evangelism in a postmodern world. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yep. Uh, one of the things I talked about there is how there might actually be more openness uh to the sacraments, and yep. they could actually be a point of contact. Uh, and <coughs> excuse me, I'd agree with you about uh, you know postmodernity, postmodernity, or postmodern. Those are terms that are huge umbrella terms, and I'm not convinced there's a, a good way to use those at this point. Um, but I guess building off that, if we're using these categories to try to understand societal and cultural shifts that take place. And I think like any system, um, they can be helpful, but you're never going to have a clean, like every instance of this here is, you know, you can locate the absolute shift that's Mm -hmm. taking place Um, from the standpoint of a preacher or from evangelism, I guess, wherever you want to go, what are the, um, the contact points with each yeah, I absolutely. Uh, let, let me back up and let me answer that in a long or, way. Or the apologetic yeah. um, points of interest. Let me, let me answer that in a long way, if that's okay. Uh, one of the flaws of modernity, and there's a lot of good things about modernism, right? Uh, we already talked about the rise of science in, in modern, I should say, modern science. Central heat. Just really good. Or central air, I mean. We are, we are, we are pro that, right? And there's a rationality. Yeah, there's a rationality that's good about this. I mean, uh, uh, we don't want to be irrational. Um, <clears throat> Trench warfare. Well, see now, there's well, where that's you a bad go. One, yeah. yeah. No, so the, yeah, that one wasn't good. But but the idea there was that everything was going to progress, and what we progressed at was killing each Gassing other. Gassing people. So if you eliminate God out of the equation and morality and sin and grace and just have this optimistic view, as the, the French poet Emile Couet says, I'm getting, I look in the mirror and I know that I'm getting better in every way every day. And he was talking about humanity there, right? The unlimited promise of science. Well, you know, then there's World War I yeah. and World War II and Korea and Vietnam and so on and so forth that you can, and then you can already see the poets and the philosophers going, yeah, I don't think so. Deflate gate. Yeah. <laughs> don't even go there. Yeah. Right? Don't even go to that one. Um, so, and I, let me, let me make a couple points here. One difference in, and I'll come back to all these, one difference between uh, a modern and pre-modern and then post-modern on either side of it would be how do you put together the spiritual and the physical the second one is how do you deal with epistemology? How do we know what we know? 
And the third one is, how do you deal with suffering and pain, the problem of evil? Let me go in reverse order. So pre-modern, we already said, this is a God thing, right? That's why, that's why you got uh, this disease, because you're a witch or something like that. Um, in the modern period, suffering is something that is to be eradicated either with a policy, a therapy, or a pill. And given enough time, we can overcome over it all of it, even death, even if there's going to be some collateral damage along the way, right? Uh, you know, the industrial, think the industrial age or whatever, or think uh, experiments on, on animals or, or humans. We get there. But what was lacking there is you don't have, you don't have a theology of suffering. Um, <clears throat> the epistemology question, again, pre-modern, God says so, Modernity is only rationality. Postmodernity says, boy, if that's rationality, um, I don't want any part of it. And I'm not quite sure that we can get to truth at all. It may be out there, but we can't get there. And how dare you modern people say you know the truth because that truth has turned into power plays and therefore suffering in the world. The physical and the spiritual in the pre-modern is going to be mixed. You can think of the mysticism of a German forest. You can think of all that kind of stuff, but it tended to be the spiritual, maybe trump the physical in certain ways. The two ways a modern person is going to deal with this physical, spiritual question, mind, body, soul, body kind of question is either from an atheist point of view, say there is no there is no soul, there is no spirit, there's no angels, there's no God. Um, and we can see some problems with that uh, when it comes to human rights, uh, when it comes to just explaining things like love and free will. Postmodernity tends to uh, put those together um, uh, and, and is holistic. As we said, we're holistic in our food, we're holistic uh, in the way we think, in our, in our you know, uh, a hospital is going to talk about, you know, uh, yeah, you know, uh, that someone's attitude, their spirituality is going to be a part of their care. Uh, I don't know that that would have been the case in, in 1940 France, right? Um, where now we kind of talk about that. So now to your original question then, and by the way, by the way, I, I think we've, we've talked about this before is why did we never, why was there like, we didn't really talk about the theology of the cross or vocation or the sacramental nature of Lutheranism as much as we do to today, you know, in, in 1950, you know, Pennsylvania. Well, I think they were in the modern period, you know, and I, I think those things were not uh, suffering, uh, you know, putting together the physical and the spiritual. Those were not as big of issues for them as much as epistemology was can the Bible be accepted as God's word, right, over against science? And so they're dealing with different problems. So when I think about, uh, you know, ministering to people today, whether it be in an apologetic uh, situation, uh, um, an evangelism situation, just preaching and teaching in general, I do see um, a rise in kind of what we might call a sacramental desire. So Simon Chan was, uh, he's a, I think, a, a reformed, maybe evangelical, but of that stripe of Christianity, not Catholic, not Lutheran, not Orthodox. And he started to talk about sacramental theology. Now, what he meant by sacramental theology was not baptism, Holy Communion, um, or Roman, the seven of Roman Catholicism. 
what he meant was a physicality that was missing in the reform, greater reformed evangelical world. Um, so when I, I've told you the story, when I went to, to Biola, um, an evangelical school, and I was the only, only Lutheran there, the token Lutheran, um, uh, they were talking about liturgy. They were talking about the sacraments. Uh, one of the teachers uh, said, uh, you, you guys are all going to be here in Los Angeles for a couple weeks, and you're going to be here on a Sunday. Here are the famous churches that you can, you know, the Mariner's Church and Saddleback, and there's a Calvary Chapel and whatever. And he said, I go to this small Baptist church, and here's why. They have Holy Communion every Sunday. And there was, There's just a desire for something physical in the life of the church to help out other people, right? More than just a soup kitchen thing, but to meet them in their physical places. Um, there was a movement towards, uh, the liturgy, uh, in the evangelical world. Uh, more than once I heard, oh, we're doing this new thing called the creed. Um, this ancient thing called the Nicene creed. There is a desire for a meal. There's a desire for the doctrine of vocation, all of these kinds of things. So I, I think as we go and minister to people, they are looking for, and here's a postmodern buzzword, authentic experience and that i think necessarily means a physical experience uh again if you if you if i look at a, a piece of fruit in 1960 i only think about the price of it well let's say 1955 i only think about the price of that banana but today you're thinking about was that ethically sourced and rightfully so in, in that way food even a banana takes on a new spiritual kind of meaning because it has an ethic to it. It has a morality to it beyond just it grew on a tree and then the economics of it getting to my, getting to my table. So when you think about Lutheranism, if this is true, if we're going into what Bowie called a Therian age or a spiritual age, and you think about the theology of the cross and you see about the, think about the physicality of the sacraments, and, and how that changes the way we look at worship. If you think about uh, vocation and God putting on masks and being, and you start to see uh, Lutheranism maybe having, not a renaissance, but, but having, something, having something to offer uniquely to a particularly American Christianity. And, and it dawned on me one day that America has only known the modern period. And if we're going into something else, there's going to be, there's going to be right at crossroads. There's going to be a reckoning. And it kind of dawned on me too, that Protestantism, this is a little bit unfair, uh, but modern Protestantism in America has also grown up in the modern period largely. And this is a contrast to the confessions, of the Lutheran church, which said, we're not a sect. We're not something that is just been made up that we, we really hang on to our historical roots, that we are Catholic in the, in the best of senses. And, and I just wonder now that we go into a modern period where we're thinking about physicality, sacramental vocation. When we think about uh, um, suffering, we need a, a theology of suffering as people are, are not going to accept the injustices in the world. And we think about ministering to people with the theology of the cross. History is on the rise, even though history majors <laughs> departments are not. People are interested in their ancestry. People are interested in history, the history, all of these things. Uh, that historical kind of uh, uh, component to Lutheranism, when Luther and Melanchthon and the rest did not, they could have, there was every good reason to say, you know, 
screw the past. We're, we're going to totally reform this. They would have had backing from, from the right there. But they maintained, we, Augustine, Ambrose, or whatever, um, that Lutheranism maybe is positioned um, to, to have something to say in the Christian contemporary world. I do want to apologize to our listeners for Mike's language. <laughs> what did I say? You said, ask the past. <laughs> um, no, I think that's an interesting point that you bring up in uh, one of interest to me in the sense of one of the things I've done work with um, regarding Fleischus, but, um, but John Gerhardt too, um, is the early Lutheran influence in patristics that it wanted to show a continuity with the past. And it really kicks off patristics as an academic field within, um, you know, Christian academia um, to show that there was not this medieval rupture in the church that you have the narrative among the reformed of the time as if you had the early church and then the church kind of went away and then you had the reformed. Um, I guess something I'd be curious to get your your thoughts are on is if if this is the case with Protestantism um, and with America that they're largely children of modernity and or in a lot of ways are um, and their experience definitely has been primarily of modernity. Um, and we would include in there the Lutheran Church in America. Right. What does that maybe say to us about the responses to a potential shift that we see in 2020 America um, within the church and within Protestantism? I'm thinking of the trajectory, for instance, of mainline Protestantism versus that of um, evangelical Protestantism, um, culture war. Um, if you have churches that largely have not been equipped uh, with a sacramental or liturgical heritage, or churches like much of Lutheranism in America that have undervalued that, um, I mean, is there perhaps a temptation for those churches or those Christians to look for those things elsewhere than with, within the church and maybe to, in a, a Dave's all seculosity kind of way, imbue those other places with a religiosity that they're not finding in their Protestant church that maybe hasn't had sufficient experience uh, or engagement with its past to uh, provide that. Yeah, and I would say this, you know, before I could just criticize a whole segment of Christianity, number one. But I do like when you do that. I'm criticizing our segment of Christianity as well. and But I, not me, right? Like, but about you. Uh, well, anything, because you've been all over the place, you know. Have you been? True. Yeah. Um, I don't know where I'm going next, but... I've well, been there's Lutheran. only a couple left. I've been Lutheran for about as long as that. Actually, longer than I was Catholic, so I'm yeah. about I'm about due for a shift. Yeah. You ever thought about the Presbyterians? I don't think I'd go. I'd uh-huh. go I think I'd go uh, Anglican. Anglican, okay. Yeah. Not East? No. Okay. That's like the least Cliché. my type, Cliché. type gig. <laughs> you know, I don't get all the love for the East. I mean, um, it's cool they do their thing, but... Right. Uh, yeah. Um, those denominations and those particular individual Christians who have been historically minded, 
who are who who are classical kind of Christians, um, whether they're evangelical, whether they're Lutheran, Anglican, or whatever, I think are more equipped to do that because they don't fly off the handle so easily because they have a sense of history, and they know what Luther said, they know what Augustine said, and um, they are what I would say Lutheran in the best way, right? Whether they have the name Lutheran or not. And what we mean, what I mean by that is, is Lutheranism is saying we're part of the church, good, bad, and ugly, the history. And we're not trying to reform it in the sense we're trying to change, change it to the point where it's something new. We're trying to reform it because we, we think it's worth saving, right? This, this history. And uh, we're not doing our own thing. It's, it's like saying um, you're in a marriage and to take a, in this case, what you're talking about, a non-Lutheran approach, and here you're using Lutheran as a big picture of what the Book of Concord says mm-hmm. about the church, would be to say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I care about marriage, so I'm going to find a, a new spouse I can have a better marriage with, mm-hmm. rather than saying, I'm in this marriage, and marriage is always tough mm-hmm. and ugly at times and has challenges, but this spouse um, and me as a spouse, um, we've got things to work through, but there's there's value in this actual marriage. So, you know, the the ch- the church is is the spouse, and, yeah. and we're gonna. It's not. I'm giving up on this one. I'm gonna yeah. go find a new one. Yeah. It's it's recognizing. Uh, I've got stuff to bear across with, but yeah. and to continue that analogy, I'm not trying to re. I'm not. I'm not going to fall into repristination where I'm going to say, oh, but. You know, the early church was pure. Like, you remember our, you know, try to get back to when we were on our honeymoon. Yeah. No, uh, the, there's, you can't undo that stuff. And the, and when you skip over all of that, as you would in your married life, you're skipping over, yeah, some ugly stuff, but a lot of good stuff too, right? So I think that analogy is apt. To, to your question about, okay, you know, h- how are we, maybe the American church or uh, a particular domination, maybe uh, ill-equipped, um, to deal with this shift going from modernity to postmodernity, if that is in case what we're doing. I think we all agree modernity is becoming overripe if it's not already passed. Um, well, I, I think that there are certain denominations that are going to um, lean towards a rationalistic view of God and of faith. Um, whether it be from a scientific point of view, maybe a more mainline liberal church or a conservative church that, uh, you know, is, is going to be uh, rationalistic in its sense of uh, the sacraments can't be real. Um, and this is how using business kind of to let's get things done, which is not necessarily, necessarily wrong in the church, but, you know, that it can be uh, abused. I think if if a denomination only grew up in the modern period and its theology leans itself towards that kind of enlightenment rationalistic view, um, you start to look at the world as something that we not only can be fixed, but we can fix it, right? Whether we fix it through a policy or we're going to uh, fix it through a political movement, right? So uh, I I think here is perhaps where Lutheranism is better equipped understanding the bound, uh, the the bondage of, of, of choice uh, of, of, of the will. Um, You know, when I, when I, when I look at somebody who is poor, maybe homeless or whatever, um, 
I have to balance out the idea of that person should work hard. They should be uh, rewarded or punished for themselves. Human responsibility, which is a is a big push uh, in in the evangelical world, right? Uh, what about human responsibility? Uh, that would be an accusation against kind of a classic reform, double predestination, or even a Lutheran view. But as a Lutheran, I got to balance that out. I, I, certainly, people, you know, you should be taught to take care of themselves. It's a biblical concept. Um, but I, I also realize, oh crap, I'm such a loser that if I was in that situation, I probably would be. It would be even in worse case. Uh, um, I understand the bound will. I understand the grasp that sin has on us. And so therefore, when I look at a political agenda today, I think I'm a little bit more nuanced instead of saying, buck up, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, don't give anybody any help. I can balance that out with saying, I have deep compassion for people who are in situations where capitalism or the government or whatever really hasn't done them many solids. At the same time, I'm not going to fall into the trap of saying that government's going to solve all of our problems either, right? So I don't have this modern view that says we can fix this problem if we just did this, if we just had the right leader. You can think about this from a liberal point of view, if we just had the right policies and the right government, uh, more government action, that we could fix these things. Nor do I think it from a conservative uh, Christian point of view that America is the shining city on the hill, right? That this is God's destiny, this country. And so I think both of them have a promise of unlimited progress that they have bought into. And I think the theologically, it, it does fit a little bit nicer with that, that uh, we can get morally better if we have the right methods. Uh, we can attain this if... Uh, um, if, if the right politicians believe the right things faith-wise, I think you are more susceptible to an idea of theocracy is too strong of a word, but you know what I mean, that, that we can have a shining city on the hill in America. And without the kind of historical, um, historical nuance that says, yeah, no nation has ever lasted forever, right? And uh, so I think that's what you're after with that question. Yeah, uh, I do want to apologize again for Mike's language. What did I say now? You dropped the C word. C-R dash dash. The poop word. <laughs> so um, I won't say that out loud again. On a side note, Mike, I was uh, um, looking up something in, in my news feed. Um for whatever news, whatever you know, how it pops up on your phone. I'm curious if there's a way that this ties into what we're talking about. <laughs> the Oscar Mayer uh, Wienermobile was pulled over in Waukesha <laughs> for failing to respect the uh, move-over law. <laughs> I don't think I can make that work. <laughs> would that be ideation or would I, that be... I, you know, it's certainly not a great work of art. I think it's just trying to sell something. And so I would put that in the consumer kind of capitalistic uh, late modernity. Okay. You know? And so it being pulled over maybe is a sign of the apocalypse or at least a movement in eras. How about that? Yeah. Is that a good answer? Is it bad that I kind of wish it had turned into a chase? <laughs> what would what would be the vehicle if you could have... Hey, if they were chasing the Wienermobile, they would be trying to 
catch up to That's it. That's right. And what would what would you? I hope they could mustered enough speed to catch them. You would relish that uh, yeah. that uh, car chase, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, I think we're out on that. <laughs> <laughs> but what if the, ve- the the police vehicle? If the driver got pulled over, I bet he would get grilled by the police. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> would you, if you could choose the police car to drive, like the police car could get dressed up as something like the Wienermobile, what would it be? Maybe like the Red Bull car? like. You know what would, like a... There's not that many driving like, a, like no, cars. But, like you could make it up. Like it'd be the police car would be dressed up as like a hamburger chasing the hot dog. Oh, what I would think, be I think French fries then. French fries then? Or or like a ketchup bottle. Yeah. That would be pretty good too. All right, sorry, I got distracted. <laughs> um, I'll let you kind of wrap up any important thoughts you have that go with it, Mike. I think it has been helpful. I just don't want to jump in on something I don't know yeah. well enough. Well, I I think you did make a point about like uh how how do then we go forward here? And you talked about Zal's book and, and stuff like that. Um, uh, I think things that we should be acutely aware of is suffering, right? And how do we have a theology of suffering? I think the theology of the cross is part and parcel of our answer there. Um, we're not a prosperity gospel church, and nor should we. We're not going to, there's not going to be unlimited progress. We are not going to fix the world. Um, it, it comes with repentance. It comes, it's a law and gospel thing. It's not, let's, we can fix the church with the right leader, with the right amount of money and stuff like that. Um, I think we should be acutely aware of the holistic nature of, of an authentic, uh, culture right now that wants authentic authenticity in their food, um, in their politicians, uh, and, and struggling against that kind of stuff, that there is an authentic, you really come into the presence of God and worship, that he's actually there in body and blood, and that affects the way we do things. Um, I think we should be uh, aware of the epistemological problems, both of modernity and postmodernity. Uh, modernity wants to think it's certain about everything, and I think we need to have some humility about that. Um, I, I also think... Um, that when we go forward, especially when we think about the young, the, the young people, right? We're always talking about the young people. That when we when we think about millennials, millennials and iGen and all these kind of other these terms about generations, I'm not disparaging that those kinds of studies. I think those are helpful. I think they may even be necessary. That that we have a handle on that kind of uh, contemporary sociological uh, study. Um, but there's a few warnings. One, they are they are marketing terms, right? Um, I know I, I once in a while ask our students, I'm like, how do you feel about people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s labeling your generation? And they all roll their eyes as if they were not individuals. Yet at the same time, I understand the purpose of that. But I want to couple that with great big swaths of philosophical history um, that we don't we don't just look at one generation, one decade, um, or even just a couple generations, but we see we're moving out of a modern period into something else. And that's just as influential on us as is pop culture and stuff like that, whether we know it or not. Um, and, and I see that in the church. It's not an accident that all of a sudden the hot topics are uh, theology of the cross, liturgy, and vocation. Right? Those were things that were largely ignored in the modern period. 
Um, <clears throat> but coming out of that, those are things that are going to be hot topics. It's not, it's not like we just figured it out, right? I mean, I, I think we became overripe on certain things. And by the way, that gives us a respect for our elders a little bit more where we, we look back at that other generations and say, I mean, I know I got frustrated. I, I never heard about vocation. Why was that? Well, they had their own battles and it was a battle for the Bible. And I'm better off that they, that in our little world, they fought and largely won. Right. Um, but then to also for the elderly, uh, elderly people in the church, the, with their wisdom, that they be humble enough to know that the next generation is going to have its own philosophical battles as well. And I think it has to do with physicality and worship and sacraments and those kinds of things, because the, the trend seems to be that, that authenticity, that physicality. How do we put those things together? I did think of something. Okay. I just I want to be frank about this. Okay. You should move over for the police if they have their sirens on on the side of the road. Or you could end up with your buns thrown in jail. And that will be no picnic, mister. I think with that, that's a good place to end. See what I did there, though? You did fantastic. That was great. I'm glad you were paying attention to what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> but we, you know, Wade and I, we don't, you know, we don't get mad at each other for that. You want to know why? Because we're free. And when all things are done with Jesus Christ, there's nothing left to do but let the bird fly. Every evening when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set him up, another round. I set him up, another round. I set him up. Another round, one more round, get me down.